I'm busy looking up Wikipedia pages of the movies that I saw. Of the uh, 2004 drama film <laughs> that we saw. It's a drama film. <laughs> I didn't see anything new in the theater, and yet I've got plenty to talk about for the first segment. Oh, well, what do you have to talk about? Um, well, I saw the matrix and I don't want to relitigate the matrix, but it did, it was a very enjoyable experience, um, seeing it again. And, uh, it made me think too. So not like about the philosophy of the meaning of the movie, as interesting as that is, I I haven't revisited the matrix in like maybe a dozen years and it was fun, whatever. It was cool. It was a good presentation. Looked good. But what occurred to me was that Shireen and I 20 years ago went to see the matrix almost sight unseen on opening was not a phenomenon yet. And we kind of took it in and we're like, Whoa, what did we just see? And then it kind of blew up. And then, so it made me think of the movies. There's probably plenty, but I can think of two movies in particular that it was the same kind of thing where you were kind of getting in on the ground floor on something. And they were the sixth sense and memento and matrix sixth sense and memento are all not first films. They're all like second or third films but they're breakout films. And I remember seeing the sixth sense, not knowing there was a twist, not knowing I was supposed to see this, you know, it hadn't yet blown up. I don't know. It just made me think how cool it is. And I wonder what the big ground floors I'm getting in on these days are. That's really true. Um, I'll say for myself that I'm getting in on no ground floors. Um, (laughs) Really recently, my Twitter feed though, has been absolutely full of people going crazy at Telluride because oh, that's yeah. going on right now. Mm-hmm. And the ground floors there are marriage story. I've heard nothing but glowing mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Waves was one I'd not heard of before, but a lot of people are excited about it. Yeah. And Parasite, those reviews, Oh yeah, they yeah. are so enthusiastic by people who I it. trust and follow. And, they could just say, I really loved this. Wow, what a movie. They go on and on and on about how it is one of the best films of the year, if not the decade, and and don't know any. make sure you don't know anything. Don't read reviews or tweets or anything. Just go, and it is absolutely the best movie. So that's setting me up for a letdown. But sure. it makes yeah, me absolutely. feel cool that I've heard about it right now. I'm also surprised how many of the biggest movies I'm looking forward to in the next couple months are coming to Netflix. That's true. That's a new sensation. That's true. They've had they've had like maybe one big title a season, but there's several things coming soon that I'm excited about, including Marriage Story. And some of those are going to have a bit of a theatrical release, about a month window, it looks like. Right. I'll probably right. go see them in the theater if I'm excited enough about them because I just want to see them. I don't know if I've ever spotted a screening of a Netflix movie near me. Hmm. Maybe it's uh, going to be super limited, but I'm still going to keep Maybe an eye yeah. out. I feel like I could have gotten in on the ground floor of Jordan Peele, but I can't pretend that I did because Get Out was already on home video when I saw it. And I, I lucked out that they re-released it in the theater, so I got to run out and mm. catch up on it. But um, I saw Get Out at the beginning. I went, though, because people were already excited about it. One yeah. movie that I saw was Moonlight. I saw that really early on. And I thought, oh, this is, you know, brilliant film that's probably too special for any recognition. It'll run the art house circuit for a month or so and then be gone. And so I, I was pretty happy to see that go all the way. And people were agreeing with you even up to moments before its win <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and after its right. win. It's uh, the one yeah. that, that most consistently makes it on people's top of the 2010s list and to me, it does kind of stand apart in in that mm-hmm. way. It's a really special yeah. movie. Yeah. And who knows what, what decades will do to it, but it certainly doesn't feel like it's going to, it feels like something special and a little transcendent. It doesn't feel like something that's going to look like a 2017 or 16, whatever that was. Yeah. I mean, the storytellers had, you know, legitimate credibility, which is a big part of it, that they were telling a story that actually was not not yeah. true but you know what i mean there there was truth in it mm-hmm. from their actual experiences and that does make a lot of difference did you watch anything new in the last week i did so actually two times ago i realized something that i watched that i didn't mention was the kitchen 
And boy, oh, right. does that seem like a trillion years ago, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But that's about as bad as you've heard that it is. Mm. It can't strike the right tone. We've got, you know, McCarthy and Haddish particularly who are known for comedy. So you think that maybe this will be kind of funny. It's not at all. And Elizabeth Moss, who is too good of an actress for this kind of a movie, taking a role that wasn't well-written way too seriously, and it it comes off as almost silly. The screenplay doesn't make any sense. This is part of our little movie glossary of these half-baked screenplays that seem to be getting made into movies more and more frequently, yeah. or is this just always the way and I'm seeing more movies than usual? Um, at any rate, they uh, play wives of mobsters who are in prison and they decide to take over the racket um, in, while their husbands are away. And there's mixed morality because they are actually trying to, you know, there's a protection racket. They're actually trying to protect the businesses. And so they attack homeless people who are sitting outside of businesses and it warms the hearts of the neighborhood because, oh, look, they're finally doing what we've paid them for all these years. <laughs> but you're like, well, that's terrible, though. And But the film seems to think it's great because they're cleaning up the neighborhood of all the riffraff and actually working the, the protection racket. And they make terrible decisions that end up in a lot of people's deaths. They don't care at all about their own family members. They care more and more about their own safety. They begin to distrust one another. And things end about as badly as they could. And at the end of the running time, I just wondered what I'd spent my time doing in the wow. kitchen. A real shame. I was looking forward to that one. And I actually canceled the ticket reservation based on a, a few reviews that came out at the same time. And I shouldn't do that. I should still give movies a chance. But my, my time is a little limited. So I decided to shuffle things around. I don't know, hard... It didn't have a great trailer, but it looked interesting. Yeah. And it's a shame. It's hard to go in with an open mind when you saw just how it got dragged. I, I tried, though, to to give it a chance. And I didn't think it was as bad as some of the more hyperbolic reviews. It, it just isn't good. I would love to see that cast in a good period gangster movie. Yeah, it's a great cast. It should have been a good movie. It was just a major screenplay problem. And I saw... Where'd you go, Bernadette? Oh, yeah. I remember seeing these trailers well over a year ago thinking that looks quirky and then it's just pushed back. And then I see a trailer that looks entirely different. Clearly, filmmakers didn't know what this movie is. So this is by Richard Linklater and uh, we've got Kate Blanchett and Billy Crudup. Uh, Kristen Wiig is, to me, the best part of the movie. Um, Bernadette is an architect who is in an artistic slump after an architectural trauma. And she's stuck in Seattle where her husband is a high level Microsoft executive played by Billy Crudup. And they have a daughter played by Emma Nelson who wants to go to Antarctica. Um, Bernadette is suffering from anxiety and from depression and social phobia. And they live in this humongous house that they bought to fix up. It was kind of like, hey, I'm an architect. But the film, I guess probably following the novel that it's based on, mixes up the role of architect and interior designer slash contractor. So Bernadette seems like she's more like a designer on trading spaces is what she's famous for. For, for example, using bifocals to decorate a house from top to bottom. But that's not the same as architecture. And when she's in this house, she doesn't seem to have any ability to to renovate it. And so the family is just living in what is, you know, a multi-million dollar property, but otherwise in squalor. And Bernadette gets overwhelmed and she gets involved unwittingly in a plot by the Russian mafia to steal her identity. And when she has to face the music on all of this, it's too overwhelming. So she disappears. Now in the novel, the character actually disappears. And the rest of the book is her daughter trying to piece together clues ultimately to find her at the end. Guess where? In, Antarct in Antarctica. And in the movie, though, we follow Bernadette. So any 
um, sort of suspense about where she is. Any mystery elements are gone. And we are just watching Bernadette navigate inconceivable coincidence in order to get to be part of a science mission to go deeper toward the South Pole than a regular person would be allowed to. She hears that they want to build a new science station. And she's like, I really want to crack at that station that just out of nowhere, these people who are service people on these ships are going to authorize her to be the architect of a major science center. It, it just boggles the mind how any of this is plausible. I guess the themes are supposed to be about finding yourself and remembering what's most important in life and not getting artistically stuck. Um, this this movie is is an exercise in being artistically stuck, I think. Hmm. They filmed a lot of stuff. It didn't come together. There's no tone. Really baffling marketing. It just sounds like they had a story they didn't know how to sell. Yeah, and Kristen Wiig is at the mercy of the plot's needs because she's a foil for Bernadette. Um, Wig plays kind of PTA mom trying to get everyone involved and is really looking forward to her big fundraiser at her house. Bernadette is a, a misanthrope and doesn't want anything to do with it or to help or to be there. And so she allows for some blackberry bushes to be removed from her property, which causes a landslide during the party and destroys Kristen Wig's house. And then they have it out as neighbors and and uh, Blanche is just kind of like, well, I'll pay for it all, whatever, leave me alone, <clears throat> leave me alone. And then when she escapes, she escapes to Wig's house, who then helps her disappear, and they become friends over coffee. And why why did that happen? So would you recommend it as like a curiosity, or you think it's a, uh, you think it's a flop? Not even. I think it's a flop. Um, I mean, I can't even remember who's all in here. Like Judy Greer plays a psychiatrist who's brought in for an intervention. And I like Judy Greer. She's a good actress, but she's wasted. Lawrence Fishburne plays a former mentor. They have what is supposedly a YouTube video about uh, Bernadette's fame as an architect and what happened that made her not want to be an architect anymore. Megan Mullally is randomly a talking head in that. And it's, and actually when it's finally revealed what happened, it's not very intriguing or heartbreaking. And so you feel kind of like you, you've been waiting to find out the secrets of how Bernadette came to be the way she is. And really she just has no coping skills and generalized anxiety. Uh, Linklater's an interesting director. I generally like how laid back his stuff is, but I don't, I think it's interesting when he takes on material like this. Uh, seems like a weird match. Yeah, I think it was a poor adaptation because it's not like it's poorly directed. There are good visuals, both of Seattle, which I, you know, have a personal affinity for because that is where I'm located, and of Antarctica. It was beautifully shot. You know, this made sense throughout. Kate Blanchett is too good of an actress for such a silly role as this. And sort of the gravitas that she brings to the role, I think, was also a liability. Um, a lesser actress might have been a better choice in a movie that went this wrong. I saw one other thing. I did try to stream something. Go for it, because I've got one more thing, too. Okay. It was an attempt, a failed attempt, although I, I just had to skip ahead to see what what happens. So I, I tried to stream Climax, which I almost went to see in the theater at one point. It's by French director. I believe he's French, Gaspar Noé, uh, who's known for very uh, brutal, unpleasant, artsy films. Uh, I think the best one, best known one might be Irreversible, which is a film um, with Monica Bellucci about a, uh, a, a happy couple until um, Monica Bellucci's character is raped brutally on screen. And then her husband go, or boyfriend goes off to hunt uh, for the uh, perpetrator and ends up killing the wrong person. And the gimmick of the movie is that it is in re it's presented in reverse, not reverse motion, but every shot is edited in reverse so that you get the end and then the middle and then the beginning. So it becomes, it starts off awful. You see this brutal murder and then it like rewinds itself to when they were happy in the beginning. Uh, anyway, that's, that's just the kind of stuff this guy likes to put in your face in the movies. 
Um, this one is about a group of uh, European kids who dance, who come together in this uh, kind of a, this abandoned school in the middle of nowhere, somewhere in Eastern Europe or France, or I don't know where it was. And they are dancing and they're sharing their styles and they're partying. And then somebody spikes the punch with LSD and they all go insane and people die and people hurt each other and run out in the snow. It's, it's insane. It's just a, 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 an exercise in what an audience can bear. Uh, there's a little child whose mother is going insane from the, the LSD. So she locks him in a closet. And the implication is that he uh, does not come out alive. It's just one of the most unpleasant things I've ever seen. I don't know what the point was. I didn't like it. Well, it doesn't sound very good. Did you get the feeling that there was some sort of metaphor at play what the LSD and the people who had run rampant were supposed to be representing? I'm sure there was some kind of an artistic intention, but it was not clear. There might have been some clues at the very beginning. There's interviews with all of the dancers, and there's a certain there, it does a, the same thing that Us does actually, where it shows a TV screen, and we're watching replay of these videos of the interviews, and then there's a stacks of movies and books on the sides. And I'm pretty sure that if I knew what those European books were, they would have some bearing. There's there's I think there's nothing overtly political about it. There's nothing you know. It simply seems to just be a, a nightmare, a, a visceral nightmare. Um, which I can handle. I, I don't mind movies that are brutal, like Hereditary or The Witch or something like that. But um, this felt punishing for its own sake without any kind of a uh, meaning or, or overarching anything. Yeah, I really dislike movies like that. Yeah. It seems to just be about what what this director has come up with this time. And, and you know, can you sit through it? And right. I'm not really that interested in that. All right. Well, that's a miss for me. Um, the other thing that I saw was Loose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Loose had been getting so much hype in weeks and months prior to my seeing it. And then it's finally released. And then we talked about that bad review on Ebert that was really shocking to me based on the really good press that it had gotten up to that point. And I can't say, oh, I'm with the Ebert reviewer because I don't have exactly the same take on it. I did not think this was a great film, though. This um, is an adaptation of a play, and I was glad to find that out because it helped it make a little more sense to me because it does play out more like a play where we have scenes between just a few actors. There's a real economy of characters and knowing that it was originally presented as a play in 2013 makes even more sense because that's the end of the Obama era and conversations about the need for exceptionalism among young black people, especially in order to be taken seriously or to get their footing in a world where um, white people have a, a lot easier was maybe a bit more relevant to what was going on. Because when I look at someone like, Obama, I could see the main character being groomed in a similar way that perhaps Obama was years ago. Anyway, Calvin Harrison Jr. gives a really great performance as Luce, a high school senior who was adopted from Eritrea when he was seven. Now, the very casual backstory is that it, it's, it's either implied or said explicitly, I don't remember which one, that we're not exactly sure what happened in those seven years, but he was very much a part of the violence in his village and was perhaps trained as a killer from a very young age. Uh, luckily, he went to a counselor, though, and was able to work through all those issues, so none of that is a problem for him anymore. And his parents are played by Naomi Watts and Tim Roth, and they have spent years and years working with Luce and gaining his trust and Pulling together as a family, it's taken a ton of emotional labor on their part. And Luce is a real star. He is uh, great at academics. He's great at sports. He is asked to give many speeches over the course of his senior year. He appears to be one of the more popular kids in his class. 
And he seems like he runs in a lot of social circles. He's kind. He wants to help other students. He's really a star. Now, Octavia Spencer is his teacher, Ms. Wilson. And one day she calls Naomi Watts into her office because there's been this assignment where the students are supposed to write in the voice of some notorious person from history. And I forget who the person was who Luce chose, but this person believes that when there's been colonization, you need to kill all the colonizers or do great violence to them in order to um, return to the way life should have been. And this disturbs Ms. Wilson because particularly of Luce's history in Africa. And so on this suspicion and fear, she took it upon herself to search his locker and she finds a bag of illegal fireworks. And so she thinks that he is going to use this as a terrorist attack in the school. Um, But she doesn't want to report him because she doesn't want to wreck his future. She just wants his mom to be aware. And so he, she gives Naomi Watts all of the evidence that she has, which of course Luce finds at home, even though his parents don't confront him with it. And then what we have is a drama of suspicion where we're going back and forth with things that might be coincidences and they might be signs of sociopathy on the part of Luce. So Luce, after he finds the fireworks at home, goes to talk to Octavia Spencer after school, and he just wants to let her know that of all the holidays, Independence Day is his favorite holiday. And you want to know why? Because fireworks. I just love how they explode. And, you know, Octavia Spencer finds this to be a little threatening. But when he she calls him on that, oh, no, what? Oh, please. And the whole movie is like this, where if you see anything wrong with Luce's behavior, you must be a racist. And the reality is that Luce is purposefully menacing. And I do think that he shows sociopathic tendencies. He manipulates both of his parents. He manipulates the principal. There is a girlfriend who was raped at a party, not by Luce, but he convinces her to make a rape allegation of of him so that at the last moment she can say that she never did and make Octavia Spencer look crazy. These are not the actions of someone who's emotionally healthy. And Octavia Spencer ends up being removed from her job because when she goes after Luce for these allegations um, and then she doesn't have anything to base them on when the girlfriend claims that she never spoke to her. Um, She's put out of a job. Her home is vandalized. Um, She has a mentally ill sister who shows up at school and strips and rubs her naked self on students before being taken away by cops uncovered in a car. Just really wild happenings. Um, And there's a final scene between Luce and Ms. Wilson, where she gives kind of the deeper meaning of the play. She feels that African-Americans are all in a box and it's the same terrible box and there are slats where light can make it in. So he's talked, so his name means light. And she's saying that they as a community need to push the most promising people into the light to let the light shine on them because only some people can only some black people can have it good. And so as far as that, that metaphor holds to see what the playwright is going for there. Mm-hmm. That's a truth. Cause there was another black student who, when some weed was found in his locker, she immediately reported him and he lost his scholarship and um, everything bad happened to that student after that. And so Luce didn't understand, why did you report him and not me? And she's saying, well, there's only so much light and we have to hold some people up. And that means pushing some people out. And that makes her sort of an interesting character. And yet the play simply manipulates her and and pushes her down every rung. Hmm. And because everything that she was thinking and suspicious of was absolutely correct. And this idea that, oh, well, we don't know that. And, oh, aren't you making assumptions? No. I watched the movie. And I watched what happened. And I watched the way that Luce manipulated people. And 
um, brought other people into his web of lies. And she was absolutely correct to be suspicious and worried. And even then, she didn't call him out. Hmm. So I found it to be very frustrating. You know that game with where you're following a ball under the cups and yeah. you're just trying to watch? That's what this is like because you're just trying to like watch it and stay on top of the plot. And in the end, you find out there's no way to win. And to me, I just left frustrated. Hmm. Interesting that it's got so much praise. It's got so much uh, positive buzz. People seem to really be into it. Think that the, the message is appealing? I think that there's a little bit of virtue signaling, um, particularly from the white reviewers that are way into it. Um, because some of the explanation and reflection on racial and racist dynamics in the film is spot on. Um, my not liking it has nothing doesn't mean that it doesn't have some truth to tell. It really does. But why it chooses to um, manipulate and humiliate and disenfranchise it, one of its primary black characters in the furtherance of what is reasonable, um, not just suspicion, but indictment of this young character. Um, I, I just, I can't get behind that. It's not, it's not truthful hmm. storytelling. Not, not to me. Yeah. There's some great performances. It's a well-made film. It's probably a good adaptation of the play, though I don't know the play. Mm -hmm. And I think worth a watch just to experience it and kind of decide for yourself what you think. Um, but to me, it it was a swing and a miss. Hmm. I probably will check that one out. I'll probably wait to stream it, but I'm curious enough to see, you know, what, um, what it's like. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Dan, I think it's time for a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your selection for this week. Birth. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Dan, why don't you uh, usher us into the world of birth? This is a really random selection for me. I have a hard time making picks because I could go the easy route and just say, oh, how about this one? But instead, I need to wring my hands and look at all of my letterboxed um, films that I've seen and think, hmm, what would be weird or forgotten or strange? <clears throat> and so this is how we got to do birth this week. I remember birth as leaving me bewildered and confounded walking out of the theater. And I'd mostly forgotten it except that it had made an intense impression upon me. What that impression was couldn't quite remember. So I thought, why don't we look back because I'm older now. Maybe I'll see birth through some new eyes. So birth is from 2004. It's an American drama film directed by Jonathan Glazer and of course, starring Nicole Kidman. And uh, there are other people in it, like uh, Lauren Bacall. And I totally forgot that Anne Heche was even in this. Yeah. Though she plays a crucial role. Instrumental. Um, yeah. yeah. Nicole Kidman plays Anna. And Anna has lost her husband 10 years ago, and I guess has been living in an extended period of grief. Um, she has found a new man, though, Joseph, played by Danny Houston. And they are engaged in the opening scenes, their engagement party. And things seem great until a 10-year-old boy named Sean, young Sean in the cast credits, played by Cameron Bright, shows up unannounced at a birthday party and claims to be the reincarnation of Nicole Kidman's husband, Sean. And initially... The family sort of laughs it off. Anna thinks this is strange, but Sean keeps insisting he is who he says he is, and he knows a lot about Anna, a lot of intimate details, uh, both about her life and her family and about her relationship with her husband, whether or not that's him, we aren't sure yet. And Anna takes this journey of coming around to believing him and uh, 
she's willing to lose almost anything in order to be reunited with Sean. And that is a summary of birth, I think. So, Josh, what's your history with this movie? My history with birth is being aware of it. Uh, I was familiar with the poster, the trailer, the bath scene, the positive, the raving, I think, Ebert review. And just knowing there was controversy and there was this weird movie and that people talk about it with a chuckle as this really insane movie and the, the, the implication seeming to be that Nicole Kidman was trying too hard and it was a sick movie. And, and so I, I never saw it. I never bothered. I just kind of, it was there in the, um, the, the periphery. And then when you selected it, I think over message, uh, Facebook messenger, I, I accused you of, of just needing, uh, to stir up controversy, to have something to talk about. Um, then I watched the movie and Dan, I really like it. I love that you like it. <laughs> I really, this is a good movie. Tell um, me what, tell me what you like about it. So here's what I like about the movie. I like the movie. I think it's solid and it's an, it's a fascinating, weird story. And I like the way it tells it. I like the director's approach. Jonathan Glazer is an interesting filmmaker has not, does not have a long filmography. I think Sexy Beast and Under the Skin are his other two major films. Um, and I've seen both of those and really like both of those. I don't remember Sexy Beast. It's been a long time. Um, I just remember it being kind of out there and and weird, but also very funny and strange. Under the Skin, uh, have you seen Under the Skin? No, I've not seen either of them. Okay. Under the Skin is a straight up science fiction story. Um, and there are supernatural possibilities in birth. Um, but it's not straight up fantasy or, or spirituality or anything, but I recommend under the skin highly. It's a very disturbing movie. It's uh, Scarlett Johansson is a, an alien basically who is on earth. Um, and she just basically lures men into uh, this kind of uh, nether zone where I guess their flesh is consumed by aliens or something, but I'm describing what he does in that movie to get to what I like about birth because he takes this weird story that could be done with camp or it could be done with winks or it could be done with over the top action. And in under the skin, he treats this bizarre premise, very straightforward, straight ahead. Uh, let's have a serious dramatic exploration with really intense filmmaking and acting of what this would be like if this happened. And that's what I like about birth is that we watch a lot of movies, uh, a lot of them your selections where there are <laughs> main characters who have like like i'm thinking of little children and kate winslet and how you know there's a lot of kind of like inner turmoil and and you have it's hard to penetrate and hard to know what's going on and so it's hard to kind of talk about the drama without trying to get inside the characters where weird stuff is going on i feel like in birth the weird stuff is the premise and then you get a very kind of stark and interesting drama where people behave and react like human beings. I don't know if I'm if I'm putting this into words properly, if I'm doing my my thoughts justice, but I like the fact that he took this weird premise that could have been a treacly movie, that could have been uh, even creepier than it is, but he just treats it like what if this happened? And I, I you mentioned the, the the emotional journey of of Kidman's character and uh, you know, a great example of that is the famous, I think it's two full minutes long, the shot in the opera where you see her um, digest and, and, and wrestle with and then ultimately land on the other side of, of, of her, her attitude about what's going on. So I think it's a shame um, that controversy and innuendo or whatever about the movie's intentions has obscured the actual movie because I think it's worth seeing and it's good. I think so too. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say I love it or um, like it. I like the filmmaking. Uh, there's something about it, like even in the movie poster where we've got uh, Kidman's face and then the tunnel where her husband died superimposed on her chest as if like his death left a hole in her. It reminds me almost of the work of Ari Aster in that way, though it doesn't get as wild in the end where this is almost a rhapsodic ode to grief and what it can do when, um, particularly when you're stuck in it. Um, I wonder if this boy is almost uh, an embodiment of her grief and her inability to let go 
I know that people are all on their own time frame. Ten years seems like it should be sufficient um, after a tragedy to be able to move on, especially if someone like Joseph came into your life. He seems like a great person and well-to-do, and he fits into your world. That should be a wonderful gift, and yet she's not quite ready to move on. I agree with you and with Ebert in liking that the premise just is what it is, and then we watch how real-seeming human characters respond to it. I love the awkwardness at the birthday party where, for some reason, every light in the house is extinguished. Yeah. And this child who sort of just made his way in with this other couple and everyone thinks he's with somebody else is suddenly standing in the room unannounced and unexpected. And who is this child? Can you imagine what that would be like if you were having a party and just all of a sudden there was a child in the room who was with nobody? That's weird enough. And then if the child wanted to have a word with me and claim he was the reincarnation of a dead spouse, that's very strange. What do you do next? Mm -hmm. And I feel like the things that the characters did rang true. And he just wouldn't leave them alone. I sort of wished that Glazer hadn't shown him following Anne Heche in that opening scene. I mm. wish that that maybe would have been revealed later on when we returned to what was happening. Um, I thought that that, that that was an interesting beginning because we don't really understand who these two characters are going to the party or why she's trying to bury something. There's a lot of intriguing right. stuff that's going on peripherally. I wonder if Nicole Kidman's um, character, if Anna was aware of her husband's affair or suspected it in the back of her mind. And that made um, his death all the worse for her in not being able to get closure, if that had something to do with it. Um, I liked the opera scene more than I, certainly more than I did when I went in unawares. Now that shot is kind of famous in its way and I was prepared for it. And I think that it is quite effective in being a part of that journey where she is coming to terms or is beginning to believe this boy and she's willing to lose everything because of course for her to make these choices is is crazy. She shouldn't be doing this. She needs to put set up a boundary and stay away from him. She's considering spending another 10 years of her life waiting for this 10 year old to be old enough to marry her. She'll be an old woman that none of this makes any sense. And yet she is so drawn to him. I had assumed, uh, not having seen it, that the plot was her somehow becoming internally convinced. I don't know how that would have even worked. And then kind of slowly pursuing this idea and then ultimately pursuing this kid. Now, in hindsight, I don't know how that would work dramatically, but that's just how I assumed it worked. It makes so much more sense, even though it's insane. The, dramatically that the boy presents this and that he just has to be so certain um, because then it's kind of like there's this force that almost that washes into their lives. And then, um, and I certainly agree that I think, I think the fact that he's a child makes it feel dangerous and puts things in a weird space. But I don't think it's a, a movie about sexuality. I don't think that's the point. I think it no. is about grief. I agree with you about that. I think it's about also it's using not quite a full on sci-fi idea, but it's using a kind of spiritual fantasy idea to explore what, how does time work and how does grief work and what does it mean to move on with your life? And is that even possible? And that, you know, um, by the end, she, uh, you see that it doesn't matter how it all worked out in the, in the circumstance or in the plot, just having brushed up against those emotions, she now, she can probably never settle again. She can never really land anywhere. Um, and I found that really moving and it's just a shame people think this is a movie about, you know, pedophilia or whatever. And I, and I, I think I said this to you the other day, I don't think the bath scenes even necessary to the story. I think you could get all the major beats across without that moment. It's an interesting moment, uh, but that's since that's all that people ended up talking about, right. I don't know I, that it helped. It certainly didn't. I think that, and maybe in retrospect, they would have removed it had they seen what a controversy it was and how it stole any thunder from the film. Also, the moment where she kisses him on the street, yeah. that's weird, and it yeah. wasn't necessary to what was going on. 
the later bath scene though where he was there in a bubble bath and she sits on the edge that's more maternal in my mind like a like a mother or a caregiver might be in a bathroom with a child who's bathing it didn't make sense especially since we understand what happens in the end that this boy is simply deeply disturbed and had convinced himself even that he was the reincarnation of her husband. Yeah. You know what courage and boldness that takes on the part of a child to enter foreign space and to menace and terrorize people out of nowhere, people that he didn't know from Eve the day before. And he, he has some deep, deep issues that he would think that it would be appropriate to walk into a bathroom where a a grown woman is bathing and remove his clothes and get in the bath with her. We can't blame the child if it's a rape or pedophile situation. I'm saying, though, that his own internal drives to do that are really off kilter. And I'm not sure what to make of that because to me, he needs to almost remain this uh, spiritual metaphory character because he starts to fall apart after that conversation with Anne Heche, where he realizes not that he's just a fraud and she's exposed him, but that I love Anna, I actually do, and thus I can't be Sean. And there's this deep understanding, since he has that connection with Anna, that I think she understands deep down, too, that the real Sean didn't love her. And rather than saying, oh, well, good riddance, this guy who was cheating on me and didn't really care for me died and now I'm free, she feels completely prisoner to to that happening. She seems like a prisoner in her family, um, a prisoner to her mother, a prisoner of their wealth. She she seems very trapped. Even the, even the opera scene where they just have to walk over all of these people to get to their chair and everything is tortured and there's always another turn or another closed door in their living space there there's no open spaces for for anna um so anyway all that to say i i like the character of young sean more when he is sort of the spiritual guide more than what we literally are supposed to understand him to be right and if that if those two bits had been removed the 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 initial bath scene and the kiss, I would have read it as Anna. Um, I don't know. I would have read it as her getting ready to rearrange her life to wait for him rather than her being in love with this boy, you know, like right, she was, of course. yeah, that's like the absurdity of it is that once it's been proven to her emotionally that this is him, what do you do? And what do you do with your, you know, like everything stops making sense and she's, it would represent an escape from that trap not only would it be a a kind of a repairing this grief it would be a a new direction it might have just been irresistible to be dangerous in the uh in the telling of the story i don't know and waiting for him as a new trap unto itself because she would be what a 50 year old woman marrying a 20 year old and i guess after all that time they still think this is a good idea that seems pretty unlikely. I felt a little confused by the ending. I didn't remember the ending from before. And I was so confused by it, I looked up you know, the Wikipedia plot to see what was happening here. And it just says, anguished, she runs in the sea. And then Joseph comes alongside her. Because she did ultimately marry him, but she doesn't seem happy about it. And there she is standing in the waves. I don't know if that's representing the infinite or the waters of her grief. It didn't seem like she was having a catharsis or she was able to release anything. She seemed just as stuck and unhappy as ever. But what was the alternative? I didn't see one for her in the story we were presented with. I almost see it as possibly like a... She's in a kind of an emotional twilight zone situation where if you read it as being a parable about grief as opposed to an actual supernatural love story, then time is a time is a curse and a blessing, right? When it comes to grief, like you can't get back what is lost, but you also can only move forward and distance may give you some kind of perspective and 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 a chance. And for her, time has like whiplashed back on itself 
at least emotionally, that's her experience. So uh, this is her, you know, getting married would represent a giant move forward. But emotionally now, she is not as distant from those feelings of grief as she was. So she may just be, you know, cracked and, and trapped in, inside of her own grief again because um, she's lost that distance and that trajectory of healing. Yeah, that could be. I really want you to see Midsummer now because mm. um, it, it's, I don't want to say it's similar because of course it's not. Um, Aster is a lot more grisly and shocking. But when we're in this, in these grief metaphors, everyone else in the story reacts the way people react to grief in life, either by saying that you're not feeling the right thing or what you're feeling is illegitimate or it's actually wrong or immoral to be feeling the way you're feeling. And that doesn't help the person find the healing they're looking for. They have to run toward that grief and they have to embrace it no matter how unacceptable the people around them think it is. Mm-hmm. I felt a little confused by Anne Heche's motivation to give that gift in the first place. Why does she want to give a spiteful engagement gift? Right. Why, after all these years, does she hate Anna so much? Right. Right. Wouldn't she almost feel a strange kind of sobering reaction? Like she might even be kind of relieved. I would think it would be a relief from whatever, if if she holds any guilt about what happened, you know, 10 years ago to say, oh, well, whatever pain I caused Anna, even if she didn't know, you know, a decade ago, now it looks like she's found happiness. So I'm glad for that. I wish that there would have been a little bit of illumination because otherwise her burying that gift is only for the plot for the kid to have something to find that would give him the information that he needs. And I was just a little confused by the timing and the, the the events of that, those opening scenes. Was there a birthday party for Lauren Bacall's character on the same night as the engagement party? Or were these two separate events? I think that was separate events. Okay. So I think the kid was waiting around in the lobby like he does while his dad does the tutoring and he followed her out and saw where she buried it, got the stuff, put his plan in motion. And then I guess the next time he was there or whenever was Lauren Bacall's birthday party. And he somehow figured out that people were going up to that apartment and decided to enter that situation claiming to be Sean. It's unthinkable that a child would do that. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Very fascinating, weird movie. But it is fascinating. I feel like there's so many high concept premises that get mediocre movies. Uh, This is a weird one. And I don't know that everything it does with it dramatically pays off or or lands. But it certainly it certainly puts all of its efforts into exploring a very, very strange premise. Yeah, it's very well made. I like the score. I like the look of it. There's such a coldness in the way they shoot New York, especially Central Park, everything just looks dead, even when there's no snow on the ground, which I which I like for this story. Um, what a bomb this was. Yeah. Five five million domestic. Mm. That's okay. real bad, real yeah. bad. Um against its twenty million dollar budget. And internationally it made another eighteen, so it did make its money back, but the uh, American movie going public did not want to see this movie. No. no, we never got that sequel. Well, I wondered what was going on in the end because young Sean is climbing a tree or something. Mm-hmm. And then there's the birth of her niece. Right. Right. And that they show prominently though. I'm not sure what the meaning of that was. I wondered if Sean was going to throw himself off the tree or something. Yeah. yeah. And then they show the birth of this little girl even though the reincarnation thing has been disproved by the plot, it seemed to be maybe what they were pointing to, some connection between him and that little girl. Yeah. I don't, also don't know if the um, the little opening button, the uh, voiceover from Sean giving a lecture about why he doesn't believe in reincarnation, I don't know that that was necessary. It just felt a little on the nose. It It wasn't necessary at all because 
if you it doesn't matter if you believe in reincarnation or not if there's reincarnation right that might be a side remark that maybe the brother-in-law would have made like Sean didn't even believe in reincarnation and that would be it right peter stormare in a uh, a rare non insane role yeah really good cast yeah really interesting um strange late credit for lauren bacall but always nice to see her this was Kidman right off of her Oscar win, basically. She'd won the year previous. She should have been flying high It's here. a very post, uh, immediate post-Oscar choice. Yeah. So, Dan, do you think uh, Birth holds up? You know, I wouldn't even put it on the echelon of holding up because that would suggest that it had that it achieved some height for me <laughs> <laughs> earlier, and it hadn't. I think that it has aged well. I think that I appreciated the movie a lot more today than when I first saw it. It'd be interesting to me if it came out today, what I'd think of it. We'll never know. I think that um, people would go to it a little more readily today than 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong about that, but um, I think maybe it was a little before its time. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, it's not going to become a perennial favorite. I'm not going to break it out when I want to watch one of my favorite movies, but I never would have seen it if you hadn't selected it. So I'm glad I did. Um, I'm, I may have eventually just in being completist and saying, oh, Jonathan Glazer, but probably not. Probably not even that. So I'm happy for well, the chance to have seen it. You're welcome. <laughs> and I'll start watching it every birthday of mine. Oh, great. <laughs> that seems like a real real pick-me-up, real shot in the arm for a new year. <laughs> All right, Dan, uh, thank you so much. This has been our podcast. Uh, we are Dan and Josh. You can follow us both on Twitter and Letterboxd. The show is at HoldsUpPod on Twitter. Our music is by Jonah Rapino, and thank you for spending this time with us. We will be back soon to talk about some movies and junk. Thanks, Dan. Yippers. All right. I hope you have a lovely barbecue. So do I. And I got some editing to do. Download my audio. Oh, yeah, I better do that now.